This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Hurley. Independent news commentary with a California perspective, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 9, Episode 14, The Retreat, talking to author Elizabeth DeMariaffi. In today's episode, author Elizabeth DeMariaffi discusses her latest crime thriller, The Retreat. When we think of a retreat, personal discovery, spiritual reawakening, and refocusing your personal goals to turn your life in a new direction come to mind. And that is certainly the goal of the protagonist, Maeve Martin, in The Retreat. Set in an alpine mountaintop resort, closed for the season, the scene is set for a peaceful venue far from the city and the cares of day-to-day life. Think the Canadian Rockies, with their jagged peaks, blanketed in snow, offering silence, solitude, and a place for introspection. Maeve Martin, a 34-year-old professional ballet dancer, has come for a two-week retreat to redirect her career away from the demanding and physically unforgiving world of professional dance. Recently divorced from a violent husband and supporting two young children, her dream is to create her own professional dance company to provide a new career direction and a stable source of income for her young family. But she's physically and emotionally challenged And this get-away-from-it-all mountaintop retreat turns out to add to her angst and even threaten her life rather than being a source for inspiration. DeMariaffi's recently published fourth book is a psychological crime thriller. It draws from both the lockdown genre of crime fiction and specifically the closed circle subgenre. Think Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None. In Closed Circle Mysteries, the story occurs in a place that's isolated from the outside world, an island, as in the case of Then There Were None, or a train, as in Murder on the Orient Express. And all of the suspects are on the inside. In the retreat, Maeve's fellow guests are three men and three women, who live at the resort semi-permanently, and who all have a history with each other. Maeve is the new arrival and has to navigate her way through some complex and difficult personalities. Hardly the serene and peaceful venue for self-discovery. Intense blizzards followed by a freak avalanche cut off the already isolated resort from the outside world. Mutual suspicion and intrigue is only intensified as they come to realize that a rescue is not about to occur. And then, one of the seven is found dead in the snow, and suspicion falls on the surviving six. Elizabeth joins us today from her home in St. John's, Newfoundland. Hi, Elizabeth, and welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. Thanks so much for having me on. My pleasure. Elizabeth, let's take a couple of moments to chat about your career, your biography, and your previous books. Absolutely. I've been in St. John's in Newfoundland for about nine years, but I actually was born and raised in Toronto, and that's where I published my first book. 
which is called How to Get Along with Women. And that was just a book of short stories that I published first with Invisible Publishing, a Canadian publisher, before I sort of fell backwards into writing thrillers. And I often say about my first novel, The Devil You Know, that I truly did not set out to write a thriller. I thought I was writing a coming-of-age novel about Uh what it was like as a young woman to grow up in Toronto through the 90s, which happens to be time that was marked for all of us by the Paul Bernardo case, a very famous serial killer in Canada, mm-hmm. and what it was like to have to grow up in that time for all of us who were teenagers. So it was as I was writing this book that, as I said, I thought was a coming-of-age novel, that I went, well, this is, a, this is really ultimately a book about fear, and the only way to really write a book about fear is to make the reader feel afraid. And, and then suddenly, here I was writing this thriller. So that was my first novel, The Devil You Know. My second novel was published in 2018, and it's called Hysteria. And that's a little bit different. It's set in the 50s in the Finger Lakes district of New York. Mm-hmm. Very Hitchcock. It follows a German emigre who's now married to a prominent American psychologist. And uh, when their son goes missing, her husband casts the blame on her. And now uh, The Retreat has just been launched both in Canada and in the States. And you actually gave a great intro for The Retreat. As you say, it's about Maeve Martin, a professional dancer who is eager to restart and rejig her life both personally and professionally and leaves her children behind with family to go to a mountain arts residency for two weeks to try and find new direction when disaster strikes and people start dying. Well, let's launch into the retreat. How did you come up with the idea for the plot? Was Agatha Christie your inspiration at all with her closed circle mysteries? Or was that also something that you just backed into? Well, I love Agatha Christie. You know, probably the for as for many of us, I think that my first entree is into mystery reading when I was a kid. So, you know, both books that you mentioned were absolutely on my mind when I was writing. I think closed circle is a great way to describe the retreat. It's not technically a locked room. A locked room mystery tends to be more of a puzzle, whereas this is just uh, more of a problem to be solved, where there's just this very small cast of characters who are all trapped together, very much like, and then there were none. And so I was thinking a lot about that style of book where we have a small cast of characters and that sort of claustrophobic feeling of being trapped together when things start to go badly and the ways that people, let's say, manage their stress <laughs> in those situations. But the, the initial idea for the retreat actually came to me years ago when I went to Banff myself, in, in many ways very similarly to the way that Maeve goes to residency in the retreat. In the retreat, the, the residency is made up. It's called the High Water Center for the Arts. In 2009... I was also newly divorced. I also was a single mother. Mm -hmm. And I think I felt a lot of the same career stakes that made a ceiling in the book. And I went to the Banff Center for the Arts, which is an arts residency here in Canada in the Rocky Mountains. Um, So I was there and I was actually working on the short stories that would later be published in How to Get Along with Women. Uh And there was one story that I began about a woman who goes to an arts residency and then gets trapped there. That sort of didn't, it just didn't do what I was wanting it to do. And I moved on and I left the file on my computer and every now and then I would think about it again. And when I came to write the retreat, all of a sudden I had this sort of epiphany of, 
truly understanding who she was and what had happened. And of course, by that time, the story had changed quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Now, Maeve is a complex character, a young woman, somewhat damaged because of this uh, ugly marriage that she had to Ian, who is now her ex-husband and subsequently was killed in an air crash, right? So he's not, he's out of her life and out of out of this world, I guess. But she's it's surprising that she would take a retreat with so much angst and uncertainty having come out of this marriage and is now looking to refashion her career. But I guess time is not on her side. She's 34 and the grant program is only available till you're 35, right? So she's got to do this quickly. That's exactly it. I really wanted with Maeve to sort of talk about that that feeling of stakes that I think are there for women in general. You know, this sort of notion of how are you going to do it all? How are you going to have children and further your career mm-hmm. at the same time? So I think some of the things that Maeve is feeling are, really felt common to me in terms of all the conversations I've had with women at that time of your life when you're sort of in your mid-30s and you're really trying to juggle a lot of things at once. But also, yeah, so Maeve has come, you know, she's had a a really complicated past already. Like She's come from a very demanding profession, you know, a physically demanding profession where she has trained her whole life as a dancer. She ends up marrying the artistic director of the company she's working for, which is a sort of a modern ballet company based out of uh, New York City. And and her husband, Ian, at first seems like he's just devoted to her before she realizes, in fact, what he's devoted to is controlling her. Mm-hmm. And now here's this man who is in control of both her personal and professional life all the time in her role as a principal dancer in this in this dance company. So I think... You know, by the time Maeve gets to the retreat, she's been liberated from that marriage. And she is absolutely determined to regain her identity. And again, this is so common for women exiting that kind of marriage, right? Mm -hmm. And the stakes are just tremendously high for her. As you say, she's got a grant that is only available to women under 35 that is funding this. You know, she recognizes that her days as a performer are really numbered. She's got two children to support, and she just feels like her entire identity is wrapped up in herself as a dancer, and she can feel that clock ticking. Well, you really get that sense of of anxiousness about her, that time is not on her side, and she's got she's some important agendas that she's got to accomplish here. And there's a, a, a nervous energy about her from the get-go and from the moment that she arrives at the resort. So she arrives at the resort and tell us uh, tell us about the other dramatis personae. <laughs> so Maeve arrives kind of between programs. It's sort of off-season. She arrives in, in November. There won't be another official program um, until the new year. And she's there when only there's a like really a handful of other artists who are all working independently, as well as some core staff. So uh, she arrives, she's greeted by the executive director's assistant, who is a PhD student in art curation, whose name is Sadie. Sadie, And Sadie herself was a dancer when she was young, and she has been following Maeve's career. So in fact, she's, she's perhaps in the first moments of their meeting a little too clingy 
uh, for Maeve's liking. And that that first meeting ends up coloring their entire relationship, yes. you know, that sort of push and pull. The executive director, Carolina Reese, is a sort of a very formidable character who, you know, has had this very wild artistic life, you know, an, an early marriage to a famous Italian playwright who yes. then died. And now she's found herself, you know, after a, a certain amount of a career as a painter up in the mountains running this artist's retreat. There's a, a two other staff members. One is a young man who heads up the journalism program, who in fact was a sort of a, an emerging genius writer who had a lot of substance issues when he was living in Chicago and New York. And he has chosen to come up here and do this job as a way to remove himself from certain temptations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so his name is Justin. Right. And there's Dan, Dan, who is a military vet and is the only one who is from that area of the world. He was born just a little bit down the mountain from where they are right now. And he is the um, the sort of operations manager, the, the grounds manager, if you will. And he deals with all the sort of physical requirements um, at the retreat. And lastly, Sim Nielsen. And Sim Nielsen, oh, actually, there's two more. There's, yes. there's two artists who were there. I'm losing track of my own characters. Uh, Sim Nielsen, who is an installation artist and a, and a conceptual artist of some renown, who's there installing a sort of a secret piece that we don't see till the end of the, till the, end of the novel. Anna Bartelmi, who is a photographer, an experimental photographer uh, from New Orleans, who quickly and easily becomes Maeve's friend. Yes, and the, so they are the the seven people who are all sort of put together. And so Maeve arrives; she is shown her studio, and she almost immediately begins her workout in the studio, and then she kindles a bit of a love interest with with Sim, right? Yes, exactly. I wanted to sort of give the feeling of what it's like to be at one of those retreats. Yes. Because there's, there's this huge amount of pressure to create something artistically. And at the same time, there's, a, I think, a huge impulse to sort of liberate yourself and, and you know, be wild and have fun. And, and the two things are, are rather at odds, you know, when you mm-hmm. get into a place like that. So she arrives, she's got this big goal, she goes to her studio, which is a separate building, sort of in the woods, and uh, yeah, and um, and begins work immediately and is sort of crushing herself in a way with the pressure she's putting on herself. And when she gets back to the main lodge, finds that just like everybody just wants to have a party. And it's hard for her to reconcile those two parts of herself. So, And she does, in part, with a, with a fast friendship with Anna and, uh, and then a sort of what she thinks is going to be a one-night stand with Sim Nielsen sort of becomes a bit more than that. And tell us about her relationship with Anna. Well, I really wanted to give Maeve some camaraderie, right? I wanted to, because because she's been involved in this, as I said, very demanding world of dance, an often competitive world. And because she was in this strange position of being married to the artistic director of this very prestigious company, she sort of missed out on the camaraderie that dancers sometimes have together because because there was this weird boundary where she was sort of isolated from the other dancers and especially the other women in the company. So I knew that I wanted to give her this this taste of friendship or sisterhood. And I loved the two of them together. I found that writing those scenes of the two of them 
together just came so easily, you know, because it was so fun to watch them playing off each other and really sort of instantly, uh, in a way, falling in love with each other the way that women can in friendship. Now, as she goes out to her studio and comes back to the main building, there's this, she she has fear. She's feels as though she's being watched or she's being followed fears of i don't know when you're when you're up there in the rockies is it the ever-present threat of the bears or the elk or what what is it what what is it is it just her general angst that's manifesting itself when she's out when she's outdoors in the snow going from studio to the main building or uh, or not i think you know, it's a little bit of both. I think, as I said, you know, she's put this tremendous amount of pressure on herself and the the stress of that begins to manifest as this generalized anxiety. But she is also kind of a city girl who has displaced herself to the mountains and at a time of year where there are almost no people there. Mm-hmm. As peaceful as that sounds, of course, it can also be quite disconcerting. As she's walking the trail between the main lodge and her own studio, She does have these moments where she feels some misgiving and some feeling that she might be being watched or tracked in some way. And one of the things that the place, High Water, is so famous for is a kind of, I guess, communal bad dream that people have when they get to that place. There's a sort of a, a mythology around having a nightmare about a bear. So when Maeve is treading that that path through the forest, she's so used to being, I think, afraid of other humans being from the city that she begins to really mistrust herself. Like she sort of can't tell, does she think she's being watched by one of the other people at the retreat, or does she think she's being tracked by an animal in the woods? So, and that begins, I think, the one of the central questions of the novel, which is like, where where is the danger? Is it inside or outside? You know, or who's more dangerous, the humans inside or the bear outdoors? Mm-hmm. Well, in fact, uh, without giving the the plot away, the danger is in both places, right? I mean, it's both inside and outside. Yes, I mean, the, the danger is really ever present, and um, it was a tremendously enjoyable to write this book that really only had two settings. There's an indoors that is eerie in all the ways that a, a large indoor space can be when you are alone in it. You know, yes. footsteps echo and, and there's a lot of darkness and shadows. And at the same time, outside feels full of dangers mm-hmm. because it's so unknown. Now, she's, uh, she's, of course, the newbie. She's just, uh, she's arrived from the big city and the the other six people who are in residence know each other, they have relationships, and come back to the point about being watched, because that plays, uh, that being spied upon and being watched is is a theme of the of the book, and it's part of the plot. I think one of the things that is so interesting about a situation like that is that you arrive, and it doesn't matter whether it's a new work situation or an artistic retreat or a summer camp, you arrive into a situation like that, and there's this expectation that everyone's just going to be instant friends. Yes. And uh, and Maeve tries really hard to break down her own boundaries and become part of this. And it is several days into her stay there when she begins to realize just how much 
has gone on before she arrived right. and the level of interwoven secrets and lies that these other six people have that uh, that have nothing to do with her. And this is the point where she starts to wonder if if they're dangerous. And when she begins to realize that at least one person is really surveilling the others, she has to wonder why. And again, without giving away the the plot, what is the is it is it voyeurism that uh, that this individual is surveilling the other people? I mean, what is the motivation for the surveillance of of a, a small group of people? Is it control? Is it a control well, thing or? I think you know, Maeve really questions who is behind the surveillance project, you know, and as you say, without giving it away, right. she, uh, she, catch, she catches one person surveilling others and wonders if they're doing it on their own or if they've been put up to it by someone else. And in either case, it is certainly, I think, about power and control, right? Mm-hmm. It's about, you know, when you watch someone and they're unaware that you're, they're watching you, you know, you change your behavior, they they kind of have something on you, right? Mm-hmm. They become privy to your secrets, to your uh, to your your personal world, the, your interior world. And I think for someone like Maeve, who has been so controlled in her previous relationship, that's particularly scary. But especially, you know, in a place where you have come to create in an uninhibited way, in a sort of a in a generative way, it'd be extremely disconcerting to see that somebody was was watching you. It would be like having somebody read your diary. Mm-hmm. Now, let, let's move on to the avalanche because the avalanche play, the, the, the focus of the novel shifts as a result of this freak avalanche, which then transforms this already isolated resort into a completely cut off resort, cut off from the outside world. And you already have the dynamics of these difficult relationships already kind of intensified by the fear of being completely isolated by this avalanche and the fear that are they ever going to be rescued or what, what are the next steps? Yeah. Well, so when Maeve arrives, winter has come in earlier than expected. And they've also had like a bit of a, a weird year for weather, you know, and this is sort of a common theme right now. I think all of us, no matter where we're living, have stories of, you know, just just things changing weather-wise. So because the temperature has been fluctuating, there is this freak avalanche that traps our handful of people at the retreat. It means they're cut off from the village below. They lose power. They lose their cell service, which was spotty to begin with, is now gone. And like all of us, they assume that this will sort itself out. Yes. You know, shortly. So And so when it does not sort itself out, takes about a night before everybody gets up the next morning and goes, hold on a second, something's actually gone quite wrong. Mm-hmm. And things must be really bad down the mountain for no one to be contacting us even. So I live in a place that has tremendous snowstorms from time to time. We, yes. get, we get you know one or two really good snowstorms every winter. When I was working on the revisions for the retreat uh, in January 2020, we got this storm of the century. Um, so, you know, over a meter of snow uh, in 24 hours and the city really shut down. This is before we had any pandemic shutdowns and the city went into a state of emergency for seven days. You know, you weren't allowed to drive your car on the roads at all. You know, 
grocery stores were closed, pharmacies were closed. You know, it was, we were really trapped in our houses in a very particular way. Many people lost power. For some communities on the island or in my part of the island, that power was gone for several days. So watching a place with as much infrastructure as a city like mine have to shut down for an entire week was like oddly comforting because I had written that exact experience <laughs> from my imagination. Uh-huh. And I was like, wow, and here it is actually happening. But I guess what I really wanted to get at was, you know, we're so used to that modern convenience of, um, you know, we can afford to run out of milk or run out of whatever it is, toilet paper, because I'll just run to the store, right? I can run to the store at 10 o'clock at night and pick up some milk. So casting this uh, small group of people into a sort of a, a weather event or a weather emergency that really cuts them off became really interesting to see, like, what happens next and how ill-prepared are we really? Well, you know, we're, we're all faced with that threat now as a result of climate change. With wherever we live, whether it's a snowstorm or an avalanche or wildfires or rising sea levels, from time to time we're being called upon to, to do things like evacuate during wildfires or that we've never really done before, that we don't really have the preparation the adequate preparation to to do. And in this case, talking about adequate preparation, a number of the seven decide to take it upon themselves to hike down the side of the mountain, leaving a few, a couple of people there at the at this empty resort and hike down the mountain to try to get help. Again, without yeah. giving away without giving away the plot, give us give us a sense of the the psychology of that for those who are left behind, kind of feeling abandoned, for those who've and, and wondering if the search party is ever going to come back, or are they completely isolated here at the resort and you know to to die a freezing cold death? Give us a sense of that. Well, I think the avalanche comes in and cuts them off. And after a couple of days of no power, no ability to communicate with the outside world, a couple of things happen. One of the things that happens is Maeve starts to have some secret anxiety that some other bigger event has triggered this. Like it's so unbelievable to her that they're unable to get communication that she begins to wonder if there's perhaps been explosion of some kind mm-hmm. or some kind of military event or, 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 or war event that's happened that has touched all this off and so that sort of feeling of complete unknown like beyond their the borders of their of their very small world at the retreat she just has no idea what's actually happened and of course after a couple of days of waiting patiently to be saved there is a personality type that's just going to want to take it into their own hands and we definitely see that happen in the novel where a few people just cannot stand sitting around anymore and despite the danger decide that they're going to just hike down the mountain, you know, try and circumvent the damage and the and the path of the avalanche, which would be unsafe, obviously, and try and find their way to town to see what's going on and if they can send search and rescue in some way. So, you know, in, in the case of the people who are left up at the retreat, I think there is both a huge relief <laughs> yes. that, the, the you know, that, that, that people are separating because there is this sort of incredible tension among the group by the time that happens and but also yes a huge fear that that now truly they will freeze to death by themselves well and 
Elizabeth, in the remaining few minutes that we have of our podcast, and again, at the risk of spilling the beans, which we don't want to do, give us, a, in the remaining few minutes, give us a sense of what the, what the, the reader should expect as the denouement of this, uh, of, of this uh, novel. You know, when I set out to write the book, what I really wanted was just a book that would be you know, full of twists, kind of dark, I think but you achieved. I think you achieved that. <laughs> uh, but also, kind of really fun. Do you know what I mean? I wanted it to be the kind of the kind of scariness that you get from a haunted house or a roller coaster. You know, that sort of thrilling scariness. Amy Stewart, who blurbed the book, called it terrifyingly fun, and that is exactly what I was going for. And I've certainly heard from a lot of readers that said, I read this in one sitting, stayed up till two in the morning. And that is 100% what I was what I wanted. I was like, this is a one sitting book. It takes place over seven days. And I just want the reader to be to feel trapped. <laughs> like they can't get it until they finish it. <laughs> well, Elizabeth, I, you know, I agree. It is a one sitting book. I did it in two sittings. But I can see where it would be a one sitting book. It's once you're once you're actually into once you're actually into it, you really can't put it down. It's a it's a very compelling story with compelling and complex characters. And the the idea of being isolated and perhaps being snowed in and covered up in an avalanche, uh, there's a there's a claustrophobic feel to the novel too. So I think you covered it all. It's fun, but it also it's terrifying at the same time. Let let me let me put it that way. That's that was the plan. That was, that was the, the plan. plan. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'd like to thank our guest Elizabeth de, de Mar- Mariafi for joining us today from Newfoundland. And Elizabeth in closing, can you tell our listeners where they can buy a copy of the retreat? Absolutely. Uh, the Retreat is published by Mulholland Books in the U.S. and HarperCollins in Canada. And you can find it pretty much anywhere you would go looking for books. So that includes Barnes & Noble, obviously Amazon, Target, sort of all the, the regular places you would go, as well as your favorite independent local bookstore. Wonderful. Well, listeners, you, you heard it directly from the author where you can buy the book. So please make sure that you do. And I'm sure we'll be hearing more from Elizabeth. And for my listeners, please take a moment to visit our website, www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com to subscribe. It's free to do so. And by subscribing, all future episodes will come directly to your inbox. You can also listen to all 170 past episodes, read my book, peruse my blog, send me an email, or make a comment. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, reporting to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.